Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name is Dave Robinson. And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville, 106.5 FM. This show's about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that is important to all of us and celebrating evidence-based policy. We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science, so... Let's get started. It's my pleasure today to be interviewing Dr. Robert Schick, who is at University of Mainz in Germany. He's written more than 80 research articles or chapters or proceedings starting from the 1980s. And I guess, would you call yourself an archaeologist historian? Yes, I'm both an archaeologist and a historian of the historical periods of late antiquity and Islam in the eastern Mediterranean in general, but more specifically the country of Jordan where I have focused my academic interests for the last 40 years. Welcome. Thank you for Mm -hmm. being on the show. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, first of all, how do you get interested in archaeology? Well, that's ultimately through the influence of my father, who was a professor of New Testament theology at a theological seminary in Dubuque, Iowa, my hometown. And back in 1970-71, my father had a sabbatical year's leave, and so the family went to live in Jerusalem that year. And I was an impressionable 13-year-old. Oh, wow, what an experience. Yeah, so ultimately I'm doing what I'm doing today because of that formative year. Yeah, I went to Disneyland, you went to Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, so then my parents, older brother and I, who had spent that year in Jerusalem, then came back for an excavation in the summer of 1974, when I had finished my junior year of high school at that point, (laughs) and that cemented my interest. So that when I started college, I knew I wanted to major in some sort of ancient history, archaeology field, and I always knew I wanted to get a doctorate and never really considered doing anything else. Yeah. I, I was and, that way and so things plants, have worked yeah. out for this as as a career, being interested in history and archaeology. Of, and well, you got your bachelor the, where then? I was at the University of Pennsylvania huh? in the Oriental Studies department there. And then for graduate school, I was at the University of Chicago yeah. in their Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations department in the Islamic history wing of that uh, uh, department. what was your doctorate research on? Yeah. Yeah, that's been my lifelong interest is the early Christian communities in Jordan, Israel, Palestine, and what happened to the Christians after the Muslim conquests of the early 7th century. And so my dissertation was focused on the end of the Byzantine period and the first couple of hundred years after the Muslim conquest to understand what had happened to the Christians using, to the extent possible, the results of archaeological excavations of these early Christian churches, of which there are hundreds around, Hmm. to see if I could figure out when those churches went out of use as a way of establishing when the Christian communities worshipping in those churches would have faded away or or disappeared. And so both historical information as well as the results of the archaeological excavations of these early churches. And that's what I've spent a lot of my career as an archaeologist doing is excavating early Christian churches, specifically in Jordan with the interest in determining when those buildings went out of use and why and what happened 
that led to these buildings going out of use, which is typically within the first couple of hundred years after the Muslim conquest, these churches go out of use. Seemingly, that's not a result of active destruction. It's just the Christians leave when the building is still physically intact. But the Christians leave, and then the church then just naturally destroys, or someone comes in and removes all of the liturgical furnishings and whatever for recycling or whatever and then the building collapses. So it's not, or there'll be a case where there's a, there was an earthquake, there was a big earthquake in uh-huh. 749 AD that did a lot of damage, and in some cases these buildings go out of use because they're destroyed by an earthquake, and then the locals don't rebuild, yeah. which is a reflection of the decline of the settlement where these churches are, that they don't get rebuilt. I mean, there's some cases of that. Commonly, though, what does not happen, these churches don't get turned into mosques. The early Muslims build separate buildings at these sites. So conversion of a church into a mosque is very rare. And would a site like that have a building on top of it, like you're going down in the basement and below, or is it just an abandoned field? Well, Well, typically, these archaeological sites are abandoned settlements, most commonly without any modern settlement on them. Well, yeah. well if, there, if there were a modern settlement, these remains would have been demolished in, yeah, in the course of the modern... Yeah, another building. No, demolished, and the stones reused mm-hmm. in a different structure. Church. So the churches that physically survive as archaeological ruins that are accessible for excavation typically then are in abandoned settlement sites without any modern remains built on the surface that end up destroying the archaeological And how deep, of course we're going beyond just your doctoral dissertation, but how deep would you go to run into these stones or other remains? How deep are they? Well, typically these remains of major buildings from Roman Byzantine Islamic times will be visible on yeah, the surface. Just right on the e- surface. Either there's the structures surviving to several wall courses above, or at least you'll see the wall lines yeah. on the surface. So normally I know that this is a church building even before the project begins because you can identify the architectural features that huh. tell you it's a church. So I mean, there's s- an apse on the east oh, end, basically. Yeah. So you know, we know what we're doing before we even start. It's and not that common that you accidentally are excavating to some random square and it turns out that this building that you find happens to be a church, it more typically you know yeah. in advance because you see the surface remains. And there might have been historical writings about Well there there are there's a good there's a, there's a good share of historical sources hmm. Greek mostly because we're in the eastern Mediterranean and then Arabic the local Christians might use in a dialect of Aramaic called Syriac for the, the, the Eastern Rite Christians will use. Well, the people are speaking an Aramaic dialect and only shift to Arabic after the Muslim conquests. So you have Greek as the prestige language, but the population is speaking this Aramaic dialect. And then Arabic comes in after the Muslim conquests. Interesting. Now, all the dumb questions. How do you determine the dates? 
like you're saying, maybe a time yeah. after the Muslim yeah. invasion. Well, if, if you luck out, in your church building will be a nice mosaic floor with a dedicatory inscription with the date saying, Oh, I see. <laughs> under the auspices of Bishop so-and-so, this church was dedicated in the year oh, 500, how often, whatever. So. How often does that happen, though? Well, commonly. Is that? Yeah, you know, well, the, the, these churches are public monuments with patrons who mm. are sponsoring the construction, and they're commonly are mosaic floors. Yeah. Not every remote village church has a lovely mosaic floor, but, but, it's but a lot of them will do, and then it's standard to have a dedicatory inscription. But then if you don't have it, or more generally in archaeology, well, in Jordan, excavations have been going on for, well, not quite a hundred years as a sound uh, scientific discipline. And the typologies of everyday artifacts, types of pottery, Mm-hmm. are well enough known, yeah. and these pottery, you know, cooking pots or, yeah. or water jugs or whatever, have a gradual evolution mm-hmm. in their style of construction, their style of decorations, and it changes rapidly enough that you can see over the course of each generation, or so people are painting their pots with yeah. a slightly different then, design or whatever. Figure out, oh, so you can period. yeah, so you can typically date layers that have an ample supply of pottery sherds in it, roughly to about a generation or so. Interesting. And so you can, for for historic periods like the late antiquity, you can normally date things. Yeah, within a, a few decades. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Coins will help, if, but they're not necessarily always going to be found where they're strategically going to help you date things. But, but the pottery typologies yeah. People have been worked out well enough. <laughs> well, yeah. Do you ever find much wood? Rarely. Jordan gets enough rain in the wintertime that any wood textiles will rot away. Yeah. And so you have to be in a very dry environment, which does sometimes happen because Jordan does have its desert areas or around the Dead Sea where it's exceptionally dry that you can get preservation of textile or wooden roof beams or whatever. But that, that's not so common. I come from a school that's basically the birthplace of dendrochronology. Oh. And they study, you know, the ancient native habitations in Arizona, which is very yes. dry. Yes. But yeah. I, they might have more trees than Jordan. Well, does. also, <laughs> also, palm trees are uh, not so good no, for dendrochronology. No tree rings. You're right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good point. Not going to work. So you've worked in Jordan. Yes. What other places have you worked? Well, I taught archaeology classes in Jerusalem at the various Palestinian universities for a few years in the late 1990s. And so I had three years with Palestinian students at an excavation, one one season in Jericho, two seasons in Ramallah. And then I had, as a grad student, one season of excavation in Egypt. And then I've had two seasons on a project in Saudi Arabia. And then the, then the, it's a more detailed story. I have a, a project that I do in India where I did also spend six years teaching Islamic studies in the city of Hyderabad. So I, yeah. have, a, I have a small sort of vacation fun project <laughs> to document heritage buildings along the east coast of India. Oh, but, so you go to India for yeah. vacation? Or <laughs> well, well, yes. Well, I was... 
I, I travel around <laughs> as a tourist, whatever, but I decided, well, I might as well do something that has some goal, purpose to it. And so I've arranged this this couple of weeks a year project to document heritage buildings. In this case, it's not my main academic interest, but I do this as a fun thing. And the, the primary goal is to have an enjoyable experience and do something constructive as yeah. a result of it. So, <laughs> so anyway, my, well, my main academic research is focused on Jordan and this Byzantine and early Islamic period. And then my main research project currently in Mainz is a continuation of my dissertation topic with a study of early Christianity in southern Jordan, which covers then also the religious shift from the Roman pagan religions to Christianity in sort of the 4th, 5th century. Hmm. By the 6th century, everybody's Christian. So then how did that transition when everybody was you know pagan back in the 1st centuries AD? How did they become Christian when What's the dynamics involved with that? To look, try to look at that a little bit closer, and then again the end of the Christian presence as they convert to Islam, within a couple hundred centuries after the Muslim conquests of the early seventh century, the Christians have mostly faded away, down to a small remnant minority that continues today in Jordan. So within about five hundred years or so, there's a complete turnover twice in the religious affiliation of the uh, population in, in Jordan. In 500 years? Yeah, the, the pagan yeah. to Christian and the Christian to Muslim uh, now, transition. Are you able to determine much about the social life of the culture at the time? Like that transition from paganism mm -hmm. to Christianity, mm -hmm. was it peaceful? Can you determine yeah. like yeah. what the government was like yeah. at the time? Or? Well, the Roman emperors, well, the late Roman emperors, when Constantine has this decree that Christianity is now a tolerated religion, then by the end of the 4th century, the successors of Constantine then have Christianity become the state religion and the only tolerated religion. So by the end of the 4th century, there were these various imperial decrees calling for an end to pagan practices. Temples are supposed to be closed, but it's only in the early 5th century that there really is an end to paganism. The temples become finally closed or destroyed in the course of the early 5th hmm. century. So, is, yeah. so it takes you know, uh, several generations so, for so this. So it wasn't by uh, decree or coercion Well, that people slowly converted? Well, in the region of Jordan that I'm focused on, it seems that the conversion to Christianity is rather slower than some other areas of the empire. Well, Palestine seemingly is rather vaster. Hmm. And well, the Jordan is on the fringes of the Roman Byzantine Empire, and it's of marginal importance economically or historically, so it's not the focus of anybody's real attention. And the temples are continuing thriving in Jordan until there's a big earthquake in the year 363. Hmm. And so, for example, in the capital city of Petra, which is this well-known site, yeah, the, the, the pagan temples are all actively in use until there's this devastating earthquake in 363, huh. and the temples are not rebuilt. But then the first churches in Petra that we know about from archaeological remains seemingly appear only a couple of generations later. So in the early 
5th century are the first churches when the temples have gone out in 363. And so what's going on yeah, in this half on. century <laughs> is still something of a mystery. Yeah, interesting. Because there seemingly is no longer any open public pagan rituals going on in these destroyed temples, which show no evidence of significant you know, reuse, rebuilding, yeah, continued use for, for pagan rituals. But then there's no clear Christian presence until, well, 50 or more years yeah, later. So that, that's one mystery that I don't know about that site. And elsewhere in the, my study area, this 363 earthquake does destroy other pagan temples which then is prior to any of the imperial legislation calling for an end to paganism. That's the sort of the 380s and later that you start getting the oh. first emperors issuing their yeah. decrees ordering the closure of temples. But that was how temples. long after the earthquake? Well, 15 to 20 years yeah, before you start with these edicts. So, in some way, the end of paganism with these temples being destroyed in 363 is prior to the government mandating the end yeah. to pagan practices, and it's caused by this natural event, and, well, seemingly there are presumably Christians around, but they're not visible. Yeah, organized or... There's no real historical sources indicating a major Christian presence at this time, but seemingly with these temples not being rebuilt after the 363 earthquake, <laughs> that's because the pagans are no longer seemingly thriving and don't want to rebuild their temples, seemingly, well, speculatively, because they've become Christians by that point. Yeah. Or maybe they were, would they have thought that earthquake was some sort of sign? Like, oh... Seeming, I kind of doubt <laughs> that. I mean, earthquakes are common enough. Yeah. And, well, if you if you have a thriving settlement, you will rebuild after your earthquake. Yeah. If you don't rebuild, then that's a sign that no, the settlement is not it's thriving. Not a vibrant. Yeah, you don't um, have a vibrant community still community. there. Yeah. Now, that's those beautiful, uh, I call them buildings, but they're carved into the you know, rock. Rock-cut cave tombs in Petra, that, for the makes Petra so world what famous. That's pagan. Yes. But yeah. were they polytheistic or were they Well, well, okay. During when is paganism? Yes. Well, well, well yes, that's <laughs> there. An, that that's an umbrella term <laughs> for non-Christian, non-Jewish yeah. religious practices in the Roman Empire. Well, they're they're, they're pagan. Yeah. But you've got well, well, the area of Jordan was part of what's called the Nabataean kingdom. So the Nabataeans are the culture that carves all these lovely yeah, rock cut uh, cave amazing. tombs in, in, in Petra. And then the Roman Empire annexes the Nabataean kingdom in the year 106 AD when the Emperor Trajan takes over oh. and incorporates Jordan into the Roman Empire. Yeah, And so then you have the pantheon of these Nabataeans who are Semitic uh, they're, they're sort of a proto-Arabic tribal group that comes in from the Arabian Peninsula, so they have their own pantheon, to which the Romans then add their own pantheon. Yeah. And you have then this cultural mix between yeah. the Semitic Nabataeans and the, the Romans with what the larger cluster of divinities are for which these temples are all being used. Interesting, wow. Well, and so then, the end of paganism seems to be in the early 5th century. There are some historical accounts 
of the last major temples going out of use. Not really willingly, but they're these last sort of holdouts of major temples. At the time that the big temple of Serapis in Alexandria gets destroyed by Christian mobs and the government closes it, oh, yeah. there are still pagans, well, striving zealously for their temples, as this one sentence in one historical source says, at Petra and at another site another major city site in southern Jordan. So this one sentence you would like to understand better. (laughs) But there's also a story of a band of zealous monks who in the 430s go around destroying the remaining temples and the synagogue in the area of Jordan and Palestine. There's There's this one famous monk bar salma by name who is famous for his aesthetic aesthetic practice of never lying down when he sleeps he hooks himself (laughs) to a wall so he remains standing up and he nods off because he's hooked to the wall he doesn't fall that's why so he he never lies down for well well yes yes. well well that's his aesthetic uh, aesthetic <laughs> practice. Well, anyway, so he's leading this band of few dozen monks who go around destroying the last temples as, oh. this, as this rather legendary life of him reports. And so that's the last sort of reports of there still being pagan temples around. So then after the 430s, essentially it's, nothing. It's hard to... Nothing. Yeah, yeah, so there's sort of a black hole in terms of mm. having... Structure yeah. to work with. Yeah, yeah. There's no archaeological evidence for any pagan temples still being used anywhere in my region of, of Jordan, and you have that historical, legendary sources that, that yeah. is the last hint that there are pagans still around, zealously defending their <laughs> their, their their temple, but ultimately succumbing to Barsalma and his band of monks. <laughs> And that earthquake, you said it was 363. How how could they be so precise with the date? Because there's historical text that tells it was May 19th. Oh, I see. It's written, yeah. Because of the historical coincidence that this was in the time of the reign of the Emperor Julian, who was the last pagan Roman emperor. Uh, Constantine was the first Christian when his successor, and then Julian comes to power in 361, and he is a pagan and tries to actively revive paganism, which is clearly losing out in Hmm. favor of Christianity. And one thing he does is that he allows the Jews in Jerusalem to start rebuilding the temple on the Temple Mount as an anti-Christian favoring Jews in Jerusalem. So they get this project started, but it is brought to a screeching halt by the earthquake of May 19, 363. And then the Emperor Julian himself is killed about a month later, and then that cancels the whole project. And there then are Christian authors who record with glee, clearly it's God's (laughs) will, that the sign of this earthquake that 
puts a stop to the rebuilding of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. So we have several Byzantine Christian church historians who report this in substantial detail and do give the exact day on which the earthquake took place. Yeah, and you had, you've worked in Jerusalem quite a bit. Yes, I, I've spent, well, about nine years accumulated yeah. time in Jordan since 1978, and then about seven years in Jerusalem, where in the 1990s I was teaching archaeology classes at the Palestinian University in Jerusalem, yeah, and also Birzeit University in, in the West Bank. Yeah. And then I, well, went off to India for my six years teaching Islamic studies there. But yes, well, I was in Jerusalem for I imagine for, a, for quite a few years I imagine as well. that's a difficult place to do your work with uh, so much um, yeah. conflict. Yes, well, the political, the nasty political situation is a drag. Jerusalem would be a, a great place to be. Yeah. Were there ever to be a satisfactory... Yeah solution to the political situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's an ever-present nastiness yeah, in the air. Yeah, it must be you know, difficult so, to work. So. Well, for me as an American, you know, the, the hassles are minimal. For my Palestinian students, it's a major yeah. obstacle to not having a resolution to the political situation is a major obstacle mm-hmm. for them. But on the other hand, archaeology well, might provide points of pride. Mm-hmm. Well, no aspect of the Palestinian National Authority really functions well because there's so much political mm-hmm. pressure from the Israelis to thwart a Palestinian state from thriving. Well, anyway, so there is a Palestinian Department of Antiquities that was established in the immediate aftermath of the Oslo Peace Accords mm-hmm. in 1994. So then I started my time in Jerusalem at the end of '94. When the situation was more hopeful in the immediate mm-hmm. aftermath of the Oslo Accords. Interesting, yeah. But things kept getting worse <laughs> and worse gradually, and by the time I ended my time in the late 90s, things were already sort of grim, and yeah. clearly there was not going to be a resolution to the political situation as the hopes were in the aftermath of the Oslo Accords in 93-94. Yeah and things have not improved since. <laughs> Do you have a favorite place that you would like to work at again? Well, there are plenty favorite? of interesting sites in Jordan hmm. yeah. where I would not mind doing further work. Well, I myself in my career have never taken the plunge to direct a major project of my own. So, yeah. so well, the big obstacle for archaeological work is getting the funds raised. And that's that's a challenge, and so I've I've never gotten yeah. the, the major funding to get a, a big project underway. So I've been joining other people's yeah, so project, and most recently I've been working at this big Roman Byzantine early Islamic urban site at the southeast end of the Dead Sea, where there was this this big there's an oasis there, so there's been occupation throughout the millennia. But the Roman Byzantine early Islamic urban center was one of the flourishing phases of occupation. You've been listening to an interview we recently had with Dr. Robert Schick, who is at University of Mainz in Germany. He's an archaeologist historian. Unfortunately, we ran out of time to complete the interview, and so we'll broadcast the rest of this interview next week on this show. Thank you. Well, that's the show this week. 
Thank you for listening to Bench Talk, The Week in Science. We think the world is a fascinating place, and science is a good way to explore it. Science truly empowers all of us. If you want to learn more about the show, go to our Facebook page. Just search for Bench Talk, two words on Facebook. You can also email us at benchtalkradio at gmail.com. That's one word, benchtalkradio at gmail.com. Now, all of our episodes are podcasted on SoundCloud, so just visit the station's website at www.forwardradio.org and scroll down to the program archives. That's www.forwardradio.org to listen to any of our old episodes. If you live outside of the Louisville broadcast area, you can still listen to us on live stream at that same website, www.forwardradio.org. This show is broadcast on WFMP LP 106.5 FM every Monday at 7.30 p.m. That's Eastern Time, 11.30 a.m. every Tuesday, and 7.30 a.m. every Wednesday. Thank you for listening to WFMP LP 106.5 FM, your grassroots, volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky where there is still a little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you.